0: For J.D. Power
1: 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards.
0: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
2: During the early days of the Second World War, the United States began to provide significant military supplies to the Allies, From September 1940, the might of the American war machine began to turn. And when the US finally entered the war in December 1941, it ramped up to full speed. In fact, during the war, American industry provided almost two-thirds of all Allied military equipment. We're talking about 297,000 aircraft, 193,000 artillery pieces, 86,000 tanks and 2 million army trucks. But where did this all take place? And how was such a massive industrial plan implemented? Well, I'm your host James Rogers, and to find out, I travelled to Connecticut in the United States. As a state located on the East Coast, looking out to the Atlantic in Europe, it was a crucible of American wartime industry, where so much innovation, including the first helicopter, was developed. While in Connecticut, I visited the fantastic Connecticut Air and Space Museum, which now sits slap-bang in the middle of this former industrial powerhouse. It was here that I met up with Len Roberto, who revealed the fascinating history of the American war machine. Enjoy. Hey Len, thank you so much for inviting me to Connecticut Air and Space Museum.
1: My pleasure, thanks for coming.
2: We are standing in front of what looks like a mighty old hangar. So tell me a little bit about this.
1: This hangar was built in 1929. It was by Glenn Curtis, who was one of the early pioneers of flight. After Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in 1927, flight schools popped up all over the country, and this was one of them. This is the oldest existing hangar in New England. It was a flying school. It taught students how to fly. Many famous aviators have been in this hangar, including Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, Igor Sikorsky, Juan Tripp. It's a pretty famous spot, and we're working on getting it restored.
2: That's a pretty A-class list of people we're talking about here, so you've got The first flights, heavier than air flights, Wright Brothers, turn of the century, and then this explosion of interest in air power. And this hangar is
1: part of that.
2: Absolutely. So do you know how many people were churned out of this in terms of learning to fly?
1: That I don't, but it existed for a long time, and we have many pictures of it through the years. So I think it was a pretty popular spot, and it's lasted this long. So I think it was a pretty popular place to come and learn how to fly.
2: So is it fair to say that this hangar, with no roof, it's rusting beams, I know you're gonna restore it all over the next few years, but this hangar here is kind of like the birthplace of air power in Connecticut, at least.
1: We like to say that, absolutely, yes. And it's in a pretty famous location here. After that, after the 30s and 40s, it was still used. It was used during the war for maintenance. It's lasted, many, many years because of that. And there's nothing else like it that we know of. And we're gonna try to bring it back to its original glory. The other side still has the Curtis logo on it, as you can still see clearly. So we're gonna try to bring it back to the way it looked in 1929.
2: Well, the thing that fascinates me about this and this site here on the east coast of the United States is that if it wasn't for this hangar being built here, then you might not have this mass amount of industry that stretches over thousands of square feet, if not miles, all around us, where you had the crucible, of airplane manufacture during the Second World War. you know, As Britain held on in those heady months through 1940, 1941, as Churchill is desperately begging Roosevelt to get involved in the war far more than just lend-lease, there are murmurations, there are small rumblings going on here that turn into a massive industrialized effort to start to put these weapons into the war so the US can fight from mid-1942 onwards.
1: Absolutely, yep. The groundwork was laid well before that for industry, contracts. Think of all these planes that you know of, American planes. Their design and their original concepts were instituted before the war. Corsair first flew in 1940, P-51. All those planes were on the drawing boards because Roosevelt knew that we were going to need them. So that industry, that technology, that innovation was started before the war and thankfully was ready just in time. Igor Sikorsky came here in the late 20s, started building his flying boats across the street, started a factory, and that just blossomed into the war to merge with Vought. Pratt & Whitney here in Connecticut built hundreds of thousands. Hamilton Standard, also in Connecticut, built the propellers for many of those airplanes as well. So all that was not too far from here.
2: Well, take me over to where Sikorsky's plant was, and I want to hear a little bit about the history of the helicopter that happened here.
1: So right across the street here, you can see these are the actual Vought Sikorsky Manufacturing hangars still standing from World War II. And they're massive. So you've
2: got this newer looking one made out of kind of metal and concrete over here. And then you've got two gigantic red brick factories with another massive hangar over to the right. In fact, from left to right, as you look across it as a panoramic, there's just endless industry all seemingly abandoned now, but this would have been a hub of activity before and during the second world war. Where did the first helicopters get manufactured?
1: The first flight occurred on the other side of that Grayish Building on September 14, 1939. The VS-300, the first practical helicopter, Igor flew it there. Many, many test flights occurred there. And like I said to you earlier, by the end of the war, 400 of the first R-4 helicopters were delivered to the Army and the Air Corps before the end of the war.
2: And were they the first of any kind of military helicopter.
1: Correct, yep, they actually did have at least one rescue of a downed airman. I believe it was in the China, Burma, India theater, but they were just starting to be used. 400 delivered by the end of the war. That's something I didn't know.
2: That's something I didn't know. You think about the helicopter when you come to Vietnam, you know, those cavalry regiments leaving their horses behind and charging in on the helicopters, but you don't think about it during the second world war. And I certainly didn't think that past that derelict building on the left and that pile of rubble on the right was the first ever proper helicopter takeoff.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. And then that went on to become, at the same time he was doing that, at the same time he was figuring out how to control the helicopter, the torque. He was working on building roughly eight to 10 Corsairs coming out of the factory every single day by the middle of 44.
2: Okay, so you've mentioned the Corsair. Let's head inside because you have an actual Corsair in there and I want to hear all about it because we've heard of the Mustangs during this period, but the Corsair was another fighter plane that had just a considerable impact specifically in the Pacific theater. All right, so we're inside this hangar. Was this part of the original Curtis hangar that we saw earlier? No,
1: this was built in the 60s.
2: This is a beast. When you think of a fighter plane, you don't think of them being this big. It's incredible. And does it have to be that big? Because it's largely, when it's designed, going to be flown on and off of carrier aircraft. So it has to be pretty
1: robust. Correct. Absolutely. Very well. Stout. Has a giant radial engine. 2,800 cubic inches. Roughly 2,000 horsepower at takeoff. This was built for the Navy and Marines. It was originally a carrier-based air-to-air fighter meant to fight the Zero and the Japanese in the Pacific. First flew in May 29, 1940. The first single-engine US plane to achieve 400 miles an hour in level flight. Wow. It took them two years to work out all the bugs. It had some issues with carrier landings. Wasn't very stable, but by 42, they had figured that out. And it was in full production by the middle of 42. And it lasted through 1948 here with
2: 7,000 were built across the street here. So this was the fastest play in the fleet at one point?
1: It was a hot rod, absolutely. It had an 11 to one kill ratio. A little bit harder to fly than most, but if you learn how to fly it right, it was a killer. Shot down over 2,000 Japanese airplanes during the war. Wow. Soldiered on in Korea to have a huge impact in Korea, ground attack.
2: So if we think about this during the Second World War, these are developed here in Connecticut on the East Coast in New England. They're tested here. The pilots are training in these around here as well, or a few are, and then they get sent off to bases?
1: Yeah, usually you started off in a T-6 SNJ, known as the Harvard, the British. Tail dragger, learn how to fly that, and then you would move right into this, into your line units used by the Marines in the Pacific Islands, the Solomon Campaign, and then it was eventually adapted successfully for carrier use, air to air, air to ground, all the way through Korea.
2: And that's why the wings fold in half, like we're seeing in front of us now. Wings folded
1: up to save space on the carrier. This is about a 38-foot wingspan. So if you fold it up, it's much less than that. So you can fit a lot more in the interior of a hangar deck. Saved a lot of space.
2: And then let's think about the practicalities of this. Because you say they're used in the Pacific theater. They're sent out there in their hundreds. When it comes to actual fighting, are we going to see these trying to take out kamikaze pilots over aircraft carriers in that desperate attempt to stop them from flying in in those suicide flights. So this is this the sort of mission that the Corsair was sent on?
1: Correct, air-to-air, air, could climb you know, relatively fast for the time, it was meant to go up and shoot down zeroes. Again, it had to fly over long distances, over the water, from their bases, from the carriers. It was adapted to carry bombs, so it was great. Marines loved it for ground attack. It was adapted later in the war to carry rockets. So by the time of Iwo Jima and Okinawa, it was launching HVAR rockets on the wings. It could carry four on each wing, I believe. Six machine guns. Other versions had four 20-millimeter cannon. So it was a pretty potent weapon. So when we rethink
2: back to those storming of the beaches of Iwo Jima or Okinawa towards the end of the war, the thing we're missing there is that these come over the top first, they're sent over the island, and they're perfect for that ground attack for the Japanese who are insanely Correct. dug in.
1: exactly, yep. They were meant to be pinpoint to try to knock those out before the marines came ashore. This is
2: laying the ground for the ground invasion.
1: Yep. And that's why it was so successful and carried over into Korea. Right. So it doesn't
2: end during the Second World War, the life of the Corsair.
1: Oh, absolutely not. They knew that they had a platform here that could grow, you know, bigger, more powerful engines, move to a four-bladed prop, more horsepower, could carry more ordnance under the wings. There were many, many squadrons flying off carriers in Korea supporting ground attack. It was essential for that. There were many squadrons. You can look them up. It's mind-boggling how many there were on carriers.
0: Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Powhatan as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak
1: with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast
0: by History Hit. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Do we know any particular battles that the Corsair w- was involved in, particularly? any notable incidents from the Korean War?
1: Through the whole conflict of the Chosin Reservoir was one of the most well-known ones in December of 1950, very early in the war. They were sent to protect a very small number of US troops was surrounded by 10 times more of that many Chinese troops. And these were essential to keeping them alive so that they could escape from the Chosin Reservoir back to the coast. So
2: this is that moment where North Korean forces have pushed down, pushed in, Surprised the US Absolutely. for all intents and purposes yep. and the South Koreans yep. and they have pushed them back to a point where things are looking pretty dangerous
1: Yeah, and then the Chinese got involved. It was a very close run thing Like I said the Chosin Reservoir was a massive amount of Chinese soldiers were pouring across attacking troops We were actually almost surrounded and we had to fight our way back through bitter bitter cold To get back down to where our coast was supply lines and the Corsairs Sky Raiders had a huge impact on preventing that slaughter It could have been really bad
2: So these make that difference in that they can really turn the tide in that early stage of the war that stops an all out defeat.
1: Absolutely. In the dawn of the jet age, this was a propeller driven fighter, but that meant it could loiter for a little bit longer than a jet. Jets would run out of fuel a lot faster. The early jets couldn't carry much ordnance because they were very underpowered. Of course, they had plenty of both. Could linger, loiter, had a lot of ordnance and it could do a lot of damage on the ground.
2: But you wouldn't see this taking on a MIG. This would be more about taking on ground targets Correct. within a yeah. relatively close radius yeah. to the aircraft carrier it was launched off.
1: I believe there were a few shootdowns where Corsair shot down MIGs, but it was a very advantageous position where the MIG was either taking off or landing or in some distress. But there were a couple of shootdowns, believe it or not. But
2: dogfights? No. Not going to happen with yeah. this, is it? No. propeller versus At that jet. time
1: yeah they knew what the role was and it was very good at it but dogfighting, it really didn't have a chance against a jet
2: what did the pilots think of this plane because that's always my go-to we can revere planes all we like but then when i talk to the pilots they're like ah oh, you know what that was difficult it's a heap yeah. of junk i prefer yeah. this what do the pilots well, think of the corsair
1: well i like to say if you talk to any pilot worth his salt he's going to say the best plane in the world was the one i was flying in at that time right they're all <laughs> yeah. going to say that but this one is pretty well known i mean that's why there are roughly 35 corsairs in the world that fly and they are iconic. I mean, when you go to an air show, these attract many people. They know that the Gold Wing Corsair, the Whistling Death, the nicknames, it's a well-known, iconic American airplane, just like the Mustang and the B-17 was.
2: Right, so we're walking around this plane, Len, but I can see that we can get up and look into that cockpit. All right, let's get up there.
1: Okay, that's tight, isn't it? It's actually pretty roomy. See, there's no floor. There would just be runners that you would sit on the rudder pedals. So if you drop something down there, good luck, it was pretty much gone. But you could stretch your legs out. Correct, yeah. You had more room than in a P-51, let's say. I've been in a P-51, it's a little bit tighter.
2: So compared to a Mustang, you've got all the room in the world?
1: A little bit more, yeah. You notice the metal seat, so not built for comfort. It did have a nice headrest, but you would sit on your parachute. Gun sight would project onto that armored glass, so it would protect you from a head-on bullet, but it would project little light gradient so that you could see to lead your target, right? You never shot at your target unless you were directly behind it. You had to lead it like you were leading a clay pigeon.
2: Right, I see. And there's no ejector seat in this. So if you need to get out, you had to open the top here.
1: Open the canopy, usually you would roll or if you couldn't roll, you would step out here and push yourself off far enough so that you wouldn't hit the tail. But most of the time there was damage so they couldn't do that. So they would have to stand on the seat and get up here and jump. You did what you had to do, I guess, to survive.
2: And how many guns are on this?
1: This one has six. 50 caliber machine guns. I think each one carried roughly on average about 300 rounds. The inner ones and the outer ones had different amounts because there was different capacity. There's openings there where the ammo boxes would go. And then on the bottom of the wing, there's chutes where the shells would fall out after being fired.
2: Okay, so you had machine guns, but this also could be equipped with...
1: 20 millimeter cannon. The Dash 4B and other versions of the Dash 1 had four 20 millimeter cannon. Carried fewer shells, but they were exploding. So if you got hit with one 20 millimeter shell, zero was pretty much going down where a machine gun bullet is just a projectile. Still powerful, but for ground attack, cannon sometimes had a bigger punch. And then some of them also were turned into night fighters and have primitive night fighting capabilities. There were various versions. They were beefed up on the wings and they can carry rocket stubs underneath. In Korea, that was very important.
2: And they have bombs as well on the bottom. They
1: carry two pylons to carry either napalm or extra fuel tanks or 500-pound bombs on each wing station.
2: Were these used in Vietnam as well, or were they brought to an end by that point?
1: No, not in Vietnam. By Korea, they were done. The British used them in the fleet Air arm in the Pacific. A lot of people don't know that. The British sent, I think, one or two carriers equipped with Corsairs, and I just finished reading a really good book about that. I knew they flew them, but I didn't know that they were sent to the Pacific by the end of the war.
2: And didn't the French take on a version as well?
1: Yep, the Dash 7 was one of the last ones built for the French specifically. I don't remember exactly what the differences are. I don't think there's very much difference, but that was designated the Dash 7 specifically for the French Navy.
2: That's a seal of approval, isn't it? When other nations' militaries start taking up an aircraft, it's battle-tested, it's proven to do what it needs to do. And so you start getting other nations hoovering it up because they know it's going to do the job for them.
1: And the last combat, as we talked about, was actually 1969. El Salvador versus Honduras, the soccer war. Corsairs fought Mustangs.
2: And Len, you got to tell us, what was the soccer war?
1: I'm not sure of the specifics, but I believe it was actually started over some kind of a sporting event. It wasn't very long, but they did fight against each other. And I believe a Corsair shot down a P-51 in the conflict.
2: Well, with that in mind then, what else was built around here? Shall we head back out to the other side of the hangar and you can just point out just a few of the places and a few of the regions where the engines were built, the propellers were built and other iconic aircraft, such as the helicopters that were built here, Okay, so we're back outside on the other side of the hangar here at the Connecticut Air and Space Museum. Tell me a little bit about the broader geography of what's going on in New England just before and during the Second World War.
1: At the same time they were developing the helicopter and the Corsairs were in production, they were building the Kingfishers here, which was a battleship-based observation plane that would be launched off of the battleships to spot the fall of shot. Those were built here as well by the same company. They were developing some pretty radical prototype things that the flying pancake was being developed here at the same time what's the flying pancake it's a v173 it looks like a pancake with two engines in the front we have a couple of models of it inside i'll show you those were being developed here by this time in the war by the middle of the war the u.s was geared up so much building so much so fast and prototypes and new ideas every manufacturer had a new design that they were trying to see if they could make a plane better
2: right i see so it's a selective process loads of things fall by the wayside but you still get this mass production of the iconic aircraft that we see during the second world war guy really is the cradle of aviation history here
1: we like to say that
2: take me into the personal stories of the people who worked in this plant. Do we know any of the stories of the men and the women who worked here? We do know how many men and women worked here.
1: I don't know that specifically. We have some literature inside that could tell that, but it's embedded in this community. We get people coming to our museum all the time. They bring us uniforms, manuals, tools, certificates, newsletters, everything from their days. My grandfather worked here. My great-grandmother worked here. My uncle worked here. One of our other volunteers here, her father was a test pilot for BOT, you know.
2: But you're right by the coast. Any risks of attacks by U-boats coming in or?
1: No, by the time the production was underway here, by middle of 42, we had finally got our act together. First six months of the war, ships were sinking off the coast of Long Island. You would see explosions of tankers and things. First six months were pretty brutal here. We didn't have anything to counter it with.
2: So you had German U-boats operating?
1: Off the coast of the U.S., yeah. Off the
2: coast of Long Island?
1: All the way down the coast. We didn't have blackout restrictions, you know, everything would be lit up so they could see ships clear as day from out there. Tons were sunk.
2: Is it safe to say that if it wasn't for the rapid mobilization and just sheer productiveness of sites like this, then America really could have had a very different war. It was the industry that was the secret weapon to America winning the war.
1: Yeah, I think it's something like 350,000 airplanes were built. Roosevelt wanted to produce 50,000 airplanes a year. I think by 45, it was 100,000 airplanes a year that we were building. We supplied the Russians with trucks yep. and jeeps and machine guns and we outbuilt the Japanese Navy by you know fourfold in terms of aircraft carriers, battleships. By the end of the war, we were undoubtedly the greatest military power that the world had ever seen.
2: Well, Len, thank you so much for taking us through this history of how America mobilized for the Second World War, all within this crucible, this part of the world where it all happens and continues to happen today. And you've made my summer because you've taken me to the site of where the first military helicopter is taking off and landing, kind of where it was invented, and then we've got the drone helicopters being tested behind us. Cheers, Len.
1: Thank you very much. My pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at historyhitww2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.